Listen, let me tell you, I'll never forget when we were uh, sort of scraping. Uh, so back when we were living in that student place, you you don't really have, you know, you, you learn how much of a luxury is a washing machine, you know? So basically what we needed to do is you, you, you need to save some money. Uh, you need to save coins for the, for the washing machines in the, in the salon. And then at some point realize, okay, there's a lot of stuff we want to wash, but then we're sort of like, let's say two Fran Swiss francs short, you know, and then you need to get it from somewhere. And, and at that point, really, I mean, we were laughing about it then. We have a few videos when we were like talking about that, you know, we, that we saved for ourselves. But now when I, when I think about it in retrospect, I feel for me, this was, a, this was actually a very difficult time. Hi there, you're listening to another episode of our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and I am a PhD candidate, chatting with a different early career researcher, or ECR, every time about their academic journeys, from which I'm hoping to learn. In this episode, I'm talking with Pavle Kiribada. But before we really dig into his story, um, I want to tell you a bit more about where to find us behind the podcast. We have a Twitter, a Facebook and an Instagram page where we would love to interact with you and hear what you think about our episodes. It would also be worth it to check out our blog on our website that is linked to a set of videos on our YouTube channel. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe. All right, now we can get into Pavla's story. So Pavla Kiribada has a BA in International Relations from the University of Belgrade And from there, he switched to an LLM in International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights at the Geneva Academy. Pavle is currently working on his PhD on the recognition of states in international law at the University of Geneva. And now, Pavla has been a TA at the Geneva Academy and also at the law faculty of the University of Geneva for a few years. But he is also a legal training associate for the International Committee of the Red Cross, for whom he created digital learning tools as well. And in addition to all of that, he has published quite a few works on topics such as torture and asylum in Serbia. Wow, it's a lot to handle and to unpack, but we'll go for it. So welcome, Pavla. I'm so glad to have you as a guest today. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Danny. Uh, listen, I was—I think I was doing well until a minute ago after your introduction, where you really made managed to make me feel really important about myself. <laughs> and the way you say these things, uh, it really comes across. I mean, that's fantastic, and thank you so much for that. But it's really not all that, you know, fantastic and and, and romantic. <laughs> well, I don't want to be like you know falsely modest or something like that. We'll have an opportunity to discuss it. Um, but as I said, so I'm not sure I probably people can't see it, but I'm blushing. <laughs> so, uh, thanks a lot for that. I really appreciate your, your words, but you're too kind. You're welcome. And I'm doing well. So great. How are you doing? I'm also very good. Um, I'm excited about the new year, uh, when this episode is actually playing. Uh, um, hopefully it will not be a repeat of 2022, oish. which could also be interpreted as a rerun of everything <laughs> we've already been through with Corona and things yeah. like that. Let's see it as a yeah. second chance. I do want to get back uh, to what you were saying about blushing. You did all of those things that I mentioned. They are on your resume. You didn't lie about them. It might have been difficult to get there. And maybe some things happened more by accident than in a very carefully planned way. But it doesn't mean 
that you didn't do that. So you can be proud of those things. You don't have to be shy. Thanks. Own it. Yeah, it's all right. Thanks. Uh, that's something that I, you know, when we start really entering into the discussion, there's a few things really that I'd like to highlight there. The relationship sort of between planning and, and luck. Uh, or sort of opportunities presenting themselves rather than seeking opportunities because actually my academic career, my whole professional career has really been a sort of chain of, of different opportunities that presented themselves with me actually pushing for very little of that. I wow. was trying to work hard, but actually, you know, I was taking opportunities as they came. So I really count myself lucky. Uh, I mean, I was working hard. But none of this was actually a really planned route, you know, it's uh, and and well, I'm sorry to say, but even like, you know, for the future visions, they're still kind of blurry, although they're, you know, some things are trying now taking shape. Um, I don't want to scare anyone by saying, well, I have no clue what's going to happen next. Uh, I do have a sort of murky vision about that. And I have some thoughts and I have some desires. But uh, ultimately, a lot of what's happened so far has been as chain of events which was which was really not very planned which is like also being lucky I think. that's interesting uh working with good people and and i i can touch this topic a little bit more uh, a bit later i'm sure we will i'm sure we'll get to that uh but for dogs like that it always helps to have a little bit of drink on the side so i'm having my Absolutely. regular amaretto uh what are you having today well i was thinking so i I'm studying and working and living currently in Switzerland, but I come from Serbia. And I have to say, with all due respect to Swiss drinks, I, I do prefer the drinks of my own country. They have some good things in Switzerland, but nevertheless, you know, I, I spend most of my time there. So maybe I'm also a bit homesick and nostalgic. So I'm going to be having something Serbian. But then I was thinking, of course, uh, before we, we met up, I was thinking about Rakia, which uh, a lot of people probably know of by now, which is the sort of Balkan drink of choice, which is normally a, a fruit brandy based in different types of fruits. Uh, around here, it's typically plum or grapes. But then I told myself, well, okay, let's, let's try something new. Let's try something else. And there's another drink called Gorki List, which means literally bitter leaf. Okay. Uh, that I also like, which is, um, which is based on, it's, 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 it's not really a spirit. It's, uh, it's a, it's a strong alcoholic beverage, which is based on a, on a mixture of herbs. Uh, so people, it's, it's, it's very bitter. Uh, I don't think that a lot of people, enjoy doesn't it. Sound I know so that people around here where it's made. Now, it doesn't sound very attractive because typically what people are going to tell you is that, you know, if, I don't know, if you have a stomach cake, you should have oh. some. I mean, I don't have a stomach cake. I think it's still a, I think it's still a good drink. And I think it, uh, I think that it's unjustly marginalized as a drink because, well, the, the major ingredient is wormwood, which is apparently a, it's, it's a herb. It's, it's apparently healthy. It's good for you, but it's also very bitter. So typically people will now have noticed that more and more people are slowly starting to drink it outside of a sort of medical uh, uh, context, uh, which is, you know, typically in summer, you might have some with, with a few, with, with a bit of ice and maybe a, a, a bit of lemon, which sort of drowns out the bitterness. But I actually, I like it uh, the way it is. So it's, it's sort of, I know that... <clears throat> In Italy, they drink uh, uh, something called Amaro Montenegro, 
which was actually brought from Montenegro, just to the south of Serbia, by, by Italian merchants a few hundred years ago. And the way they make it in Italy, because I've had it in Italy, it's, it's more or less the same drink, but it's a bit milder okay. the way they make it. So we, we make it like proper <laughs> medicine, I think. Of course, it's not medicine, obviously, but that's what a lot of people see it like. So I'm going to be having some of that. Okay, today. I hope it doesn't make you bitter and, during uh, the conversation. I know, listen, well, I'm not sure, you know, depending on where we <laughs> take this, if some of my own stories might make me bitter. So maybe maybe it goes well together, you know, it's, uh, I'm just joking, actually, it's, I, I have a, I think I have a nice story, which was, you know, on some things, and probably for some of the listeners, they might uh, be able to identify with mm -hmm. this, which obviously all of us have difficulties as PhD students, you know, you, you want to start an academic career. And it's always a bumpy road uh, right. in, in that direction. So yeah, might be a few some bitterness as well. But maybe I'll just then I'll just say, well, it's the drink which is bitter rather than the story, if you get my meaning. But I should be. I'm in a good mood. Oh, that's good. I'm great. It's good to hear so, that. And I'm in a really good mood, and and I'm really thrilled to 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 have this uh, conversation with you. So I promise not to let the bitter drink <laughs> make my mood bitter uh, well, as well. Well, this is exactly the reason why we started doing this podcast, right? Because we want to hear everyone's stories, and of course, celebrate uh, all the good things and the successes, like everything I've just mentioned about you, but also some of the struggles, so we can also learn from each other, right? Because there have been so many before mm -hmm. us. Um, and we can learn a lot from that. It doesn't have to be a lonely journey. So cheers to some tips and tricks. Cheers. Also to the new year. Hopefully it's going to be better than, right. than this year and, and last year. Definitely drink to that. All right. So now that we're all set, I'm going to start with a few short questions. And my sure. first one is... I'm ready. How many cups of coffee or the beverage of your choice do you have each morning? Uh, each morning. Well, only one. I have a cup of coffee. Uh, it's for me, it's an absolute necessity. So if I haven't had my morning coffee, then just nothing is going to get done. Don't talk to me, please, because I'm not in the mood. I get that. So the first thing I think typically, even before breakfast, it's the first thing is, is a cup of coffee. All right. And then, um, during your working day after that coffee, um, and, as we said, the last two years, most things happening on Zoom because of the pandemic online, at least. What is the craziest online background that you have encountered so far? Backgrounds, as in as in uh, visible, physical backgrounds, like for people tuning into Zoom, Yes, right? exactly. Like some people just have their own living rooms. Other people have these fake ones. Well, I haven't exactly had anything really crazy. But once when we were in class, there was actually a group of students uh, sitting in somebody's apartment and they were actually having a party in the background. And this was like, let's say this was maybe 2 p.m. So just after lunch, we had class from 2 to 4 and there was a, a bunch of guys with beers and probably, okay, well, they were muted, <laughs> but clearly they were dancing, they were listening to music. So I think that was kind of, I mean, I, I found, I was, I was happy to see that. And this was, this was, uh, back during the so-called first mm -hmm. wave. So it was spring last year. Everything was online. Everyone was still, we were all very scared. It was something new. Uh, it only just started and there were people basically having a party in, in somebody's apartment during a class and then chiming in 
uh, uh, sort of to ask questions when, when, you know, somebody raises a hand, they, they become unmuted. There's still music in the background. <laughs> and, you know, they're like, okay, just, just put it down, put it down. Quickly, I'm asking a question. And they were following, which was really cool. Okay. Uh, I think that was awesome. So was it weird? I guess it was. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that I would, if, if I had been following the class, I'm not sure that I would have felt so comfortable and relaxed as to, well, organize a background party. Uh, but frankly, now, well, they've all graduated, so I can say I really think it was awesome. Right. I was going to say, maybe it would have made more sense for those students to just put their screens on the black square. But they were actually actively participating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds nice. Right, well, my last short question before we really dig into more stuff is if you could have an unlimited supply of just one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Uh, there's a Swiss chocolate called uh, Ragusa, and it's a, it's a very famous brand. I know they, they export it all around, but um, for me, the first time I tried it was when, I, was when I moved to Switzerland. We don't have it around here. And the thing is, they're, they're not very expensive. You can buy them really by the bulk, uh, and they're actually always a nice present for me. So when, when I come back and, you know, there's a lot of people that I want to see, and because I want to show them that I've been thinking about them, so at least I, I, I slip a bit of Swiss chocolate. Well, chocolate does sound like a really good one that benefits both you and your social contacts. So it's a win-win. Mm -hmm. I hope I hope you're happy with my answer. That's good enough. It was, it was good, yeah. And it's something that I could totally All relate right. to, chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, we have drinks and we had coffee this morning. And we often have chocolates, so now we're definitely all set to continue uh, talking a little bit about your academic journey. Absolutely. Um, and I usually always start at the beginning, right? And that is the BA. You started with a BA in international relations in Serbia. Yeah. Um, but how did you get interested in international law and human rights from there? Uh, that's, a, that, that's a really good question. Um, when I was, back when I was a kid, I just, I, I only knew one thing about my life. So I'd, I wanted to do social sciences. I, I didn't want to do math. I didn't want to do physics. I didn't want to do chemistry. I I just don't have, my, my brain does not comprehend natural sciences. So I opted for the next best thing. So in, insofar as social sciences can in fact be considered science, uh, and that also is, a, is, a, is open for debate. Um, I just knew it was going to be something along these lines. Now, when, when I was a kid, I really loved history. And then a bit later, I started to love philosophy. So when I was in high school, I told myself, okay, well, it's going to be either history or philosophy. Okay. And then, and what, whatever I, whatever happened, I just knew, okay, even if it's not, uh, philosophy or history, I know that it's not going to be no matter the cost, it's not going to be a law. <laughs> and then my mom uh, told me, well, my dad was like, okay, well, you should study whatever you like. Yeah, you should, you should just, you know, do, you should follow your instincts, follow your gut. So, nice. yeah. But my mom was like, are you crazy? <laughs> Why would you study that? What are you going to do with mm -hmm. this? What are you going to do with this in Serbia? I, I, I don't recall the exact moment when I made my, my mind up about, about, about doing international relations, but I was also looking at what they were asking for, for the, uh, because you need to pass an exam to get enrolled. Okay. 
So there they were really insisting on, on history. I said, well, listen, I love history. At least I have to, I'm going to prepare for the, I'm going to do a history exam. I love it. And there's going to be a lot, we're going to be studying history a lot, especially modern history uh, at the faculty. So I said, well, why not? I had some, some other options maybe as well, but I got in. Uh, I had a scholarship and I was like, let's do it. So that's how I got into international relations. And then, then I realized relatively soon that I, even though I really enjoyed my time at the faculty of, of political science, because so in, at the University of Belgrade, and we study international relations at the faculty of political science. And then you have four uh, programs, one of which is, is international relations. Um, and when I started studying this, I really liked the history and philosophy classes, uh, as I could have assumed before, and sociology and uh, political economy, etc. But I actually didn't like international relations as such. I don't know why. It just I just didn't enjoy it. But then on my second year, we actually had uh, international law, and we had a full year of international law, and I actually started liking that. And I said. Wow, this is this is really interesting. So it was a part of your studies in a way. Yeah, it's it's a core course. So we had for a full year, we had for two semesters. Formally, it was it was two courses. Informally, it was two parts of the same course with the with the same professor, the same teaching assistant. Uh, a sort of curriculum that that is really absolutely joined between the two courses and it was really good. And I, and I'd never had a clue about international law before that. And I told myself, well, this is interesting because somehow it's practical and I haven't, and I'd never had any sort of experience with practical stuff before that. Remind, remember, I want to study mm -hmm. history or philosophy, you know, what are really the practical implications with all due respect uh, to, to historians and philosophers. And I, and I really still think of myself deep down as, as, being part of the same of the same team uh, as they are, but um, actually here when we when we the way we were we were studying international law was to have sort of hypothetical cases with with fictitious states made up scenarios etc. Where you would actually be able to apply the okay. law, and I found this really interesting. And apparently, I was good enough at it, even though I still hadn't made, made up my mind that okay, well, I'm gonna I want to specialize in this. But actually, my, my teaching assistant, who is, well, now he, he is today actually an associate professor at the Faculty of Political Science, teaching international law, is a great guy, uh, who, without really knowing me personally, somehow just concluding based on my questions and my comments, that I'd be a good person to send to a national moot court competition on humanitarian law. Okay. And that, you know, humanitarian law, which is a branch of, of international law, focusing, it's, it's, we call it today, it's the sort of euphemistic term, humanitarian law, it's actually the laws of war. Uh, and I, I hadn't had any sort of clue about that, but I studied for the competition. And, uh, well, that's sort of how I finally got to, uh, to international law. Okay, so uh, you had a few courses that introduced you, but then... The fun part, the National Moot Court, um, really got you more into it. Yeah, no. So the Moot Court made me 
realize what masters I wanted to do. So I knew that this is something that I, that I wanted to do. And, but the problem is that ever since then, basically now, you know, asking me, you know, if I would have done something different, well, I would have gotten a bachelor's degree in law because my life today would have been easier. Um, because I mean, I'm a lawyer, basically. I mean, I, the only thing that I know really is law. And I am, and you can do, well, in the eyes of many, you can do as many masters and as many PhDs in law as you like, but for many lawyers, you will never be actually a lawyer, proper lawyer, unless you've done a, 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 a JD or a bachelor's degree uh, in law, oh, wow. which I haven't done. But the thing, so technically, I'm what they call around here a politicologist for uh, international relations, but I actually don't really have a first clue about international relations. I really do international law today. Right. Well, actually, I wanted to get back to what you said earlier about how your dad was totally fine with you studying whatever was going to make you happy. I have a parent like that, and I'm very glad that I had one. Otherwise, I might not have been where I am today. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and then my other parent, she also never told me no or anything or what to do exactly. But my mother is a journalist. And... Um, uh-huh. I ah. think my one skill is writing, actually. So when I was already in high school, I was also part of the like high school newspaper, you know. And everyone was telling me, so why don't Fantastic. you go and study journalism? And why don't you become a journalist? So I was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to do what my mom did. Like, it's just, I don't care. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to do what she also did, right? Exactly. I never would have done something like that. I think I, I, I think that I, back in the day when I was a teenager, if you told me, okay, hey, you want to do what your mom does or your dad does, I think for me this would have been an issue. I think I would say, I'm, I'm just going to do something else, anything else at all, really, but I'm not going to do the same thing mm -hmm. that they are because then they're going to say, well, I don't know. Okay, well, I don't know. His mom is a lawyer, so he wants to be a lawyer. You yeah. Know? I think it's irrational, maybe, but <laughs> that's the way I was thinking at the it's, time. It's maybe a thing of age, yeah, and also becoming or trying yeah. to become independent. <laughs> I think that's very important too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But it was interesting about getting out of the nest. What you were saying about your mom being a lawyer—that that's also why you didn't want to study law—and now you do refer to yourself as a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> so it all went back round. Yeah. So you don't have the BA, but you do have an LLM, um, and for that degree, yes. you moved to Geneva. So I wanted to ask you what yes. it was like to move from Belgrade to Geneva. Wow. Well, um, I had never lived abroad before that. I'd been traveling a lot. I was, I was lucky to be able to travel quite a bit and, and I was really happy about traveling. But living in Switzerland, moving from Serbia was, for me, was, was, was a big deal. And it's funny because it's really not that far. Uh, so Belgrade to Geneva is less than two hours by plane. So it's, it's, it's actually really close. Yet, nevertheless, I think that the, the, the sort of cultural differences are significant. Um, when I came, when I first came to Switzerland, I obviously as a, a non-EU national, I had to go through quite a bit of, of administration and, and to be honest, quite a bit of bureaucracy as well. In terms of uh, securing my my uh, my permit and my visa and and finding a place to stay and all of this is actually not easy in Geneva at all under any circumstances and then doubly so if you're not 
Swiss or an EU national. Right. Because for EU nationals, basically, you, you get some privileges because of contracts between these between Switzerland and the European Union, but for the rest of us, we really don't get to benefit from that. So that was that was that was. I have to say that was tough that first year when I when I did the the LLM, but I got used to it after a while. It was actually more difficult because after I finished my LLM, I came back to Serbia for two years and I worked here for in Serbia for for two years. Then I went back to Geneva again working for the Red Cross and then starting the PhD. And that second time was actually, I think, more difficult than the first one really? had been because I went under different circumstances. But, you know, sort of a, the, the short answer, I guess, to, to your question about well, what it was like moving to Switzerland was it was it was good. It was it was exhilarating. It was it was challenging. But I felt that somehow I I grew up the first time I, I went to Switzerland. Was it worth it for you to do the LLM in another country, in a different university? Um, what did that add, do you think, to later your career or uh, your experience? Did it make you happy? Was it what you expected? Was it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it was uh, maybe one of, one of the best decisions of my life, professionally-wise. Um, first of all, really, like, just on a professional level... It really, so the thing, uh, so the Geneva Academy, which is really the place that I want to be for my LLM. And I, and I knew after the moot court, which I told you was about humanitarian law. Well, I said, I'm really into this. I'm interested. I want to study this. So I asked around and people told me, well, you should look at Geneva because Geneva is sort of the place to be for uh, international humanitarian law, you know, the Geneva conventions, etc. It's the International Committee of the Red Cross is there, which is sort of the guardian of the of the Geneva Convention. So it's in terms of humanitarian law, it was really sort of the place to be. And it was you know, like top of my list for that. So and what's really an added value and which is relatively rare, I think, in uh, is 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 really Geneva, which isn't a big town. But it's really good if you want to study international humanitarian law, because you're really sort of at the epicenter of what's going on there. And when I went to study there, it wasn't just the program, but it was it was Geneva itself, which really, really helped me, uh, well, master international humanitarian law, because you're because everywhere you turn, there's going to be a conference about it, there's going to be diplomatic meetings, there's going to be panels, there's going to be uh, galleries, there's going to be art exhibitions uh, with this sort of um, subject, the United Nations is there, etc. So, like, and typically, really, everyone working in the field of international humanitarian law passes through Geneva sooner or later. It might not really be a place to stay and to spend all of your career, but it's definitely a place where people meet. But also, more broadly, I mean, it was, again, I'm talking about Geneva because my, my study abroad experience was Geneva and still is Geneva, uh, is that it's, it's a small town, but it's really super cosmopolitan. Like in my program, there was about 30 of us back then, 2013, when I, when I enrolled. Uh, in my LLM, there was around 35 students, let's say, and there was about 35 people coming from literally all over the world. We had one 
one who was who was a Swiss national yeah. and he was actually a dual French Swiss national. So so it was it was really really cosmopolitan, and I love this. I really really uh, love this, and and like it for me it was like you know window to the world, like literally the entire world, uh, because of all the 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 amazing friendships that I was able to to build up back then with with people from just almost every country, you know. And that was that was something which I think is priceless. It's not necessarily part formally of the program, but it's definitely a major added value. Which is like, let's say, for just for these two reasons, it was fantastic. I think the the decision to uh, to go abroad. I feel like I'm getting a few uh, mixed signals from you in a way, though. Like I understood everything you've s talked about so far, but um, of course we talked a little bit about the struggles of moving, especially to Geneva. Um, and then how important it also was for you professionally. And then you've also mentioned earlier that after the LLM, you went back to Serbia and eventually you started doing your PhD yes. back in Geneva again. So I wanted to ask about that particular part, uh, that time frame in your life. Yeah. You didn't do it back to back, the LLM and the PhD. So what happened no. in between? No. All right. So bachelor's and my master's, I did back to back. So as soon as I finished my, my bachelor's degree, I started the LLM. So, and I literally hadn't had a day's worth of working experience in my life before that, mm -hmm. right? So we had back then a number of, uh, uh, there, was, there was a lot of internship programs available for, uh, for academy students in Geneva, but it was fairly limited. And I was, I think I was really, really bad at applying because I just sort of thought, well, I got it from a, from a TA somehow that, you know, under the circumstances, you know, you should, if you're writing a, a cover letter for a, for an internship, you should really just stick to like one paragraph. So my, my cover letters were awful, like probably for anyone who was reading them, it was like one paragraph saying, well, my name is Pablo. I want to work with you. Mm. Best regards. I mean, something yeah. like that, you know, so clearly I didn't get anything. Uh, so after I'd finished though, I had no clue what I was going to do, but I felt that I wasn't able to, especially back then, all right, it was already a big deal going abroad for studies, but somehow it wasn't really, it really wasn't, I, I just did not accept somehow the possibility of working in Switzerland as, as, as being rational, as being possible for me. So I was like, okay, I, I, I need to go back. I need to start working. And then we see, we'll see about it one day. Although frankly, when I went back from Geneva, my idea was not to come back to Switzerland later and live in Switzerland. Okay. So I went back to, to Serbia uh, and a sort of a couple of months later, actually, I was accepted as an intern at UNHCR, so the UN Refugee Agency, hmm. but in Serbia. And for uh, five or six months, I was working with them. And then I was employed by a, by a partner organization which is actually a local NGO called the, the Belgrade Center for Human Rights. And I was working in human rights. I was working with asylum seekers and refugees, and I loved that job. And for basically for these, for a, for a year, for a year and a half, I was working, I was working with them, uh, without really any sort of intention of going back to Geneva until, so two years after I finished the LLM, until I saw a position open for a, for a, for a traineeship at the International Committee of the Red Cross, okay. which was under the supervision of my, of my former teaching assistant from the academy, who had now become a, a, a legal training, uh, advisor at the, at the, at ICUC headquarters in Geneva. 
And I told myself, well, why not? I'm going to apply. Let's give it a shot. Uh, I like her. I think she's great. But I was like, okay, well, I mean, the idea was not necessarily to go back. And when I got it, and I was like, oh my God, I got this. So let's plan a new life. Let's go back to Switzerland. And then the, but again, with no clear idea of how long to stay there, you know, uh, because actually I, I, I lived a really nice life in Belgrade. I was very happy. So you got the job. Yeah, that, that's, that's the story. I got the job. Uh, I did it for, uh, for a year in Geneva. And just as I was about to finish the, the intern, well, the traineeship program. So it's, it's a traineeship. Um, and they call it basically, well, you, you get the title of associate there, but, um, Basically, once I'd finished that, there was an opening at the, at the academy for a teaching assistant. And I had been thinking about a PhD before that. So basically, I said, well, okay, I'm going to apply for this. And I started a PhD and I, and I got it. And I've been there ever since. So it's been almost five years now that I'm, a, that I'm an assistant at the Geneva Academy. Also as a teaching assistant, right? So basically, yeah, because... The thing is, when, when I accepted this, the idea was, I want to do a PhD, but it's going to be difficult doing a PhD with a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was one of the things that I was, that I was thinking about, because I, I do have friends who are working this way. But with the teaching assistant position, obviously, it's tailored actually to PhD students, uh, to a certain extent, at least. So I said, well, okay, well, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it, it's both, I, I'm, I'm going to get a job. And I'm going to do the PhD. So um, I thought it was a good position and I got it. Congratulations. That was really nice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was. Uh, so that's the story, basically. Now, wh- why I came back was like, I saw really this position at the, the Red Cross. And then I saw, well, actually, at the, the position at the academy was that a friend of mine was leaving the academy and Because she was leaving with fairly short notice, she needed to put in a good word for someone to replace her. So to, as to facilitate really the process for the academy itself. And she actually thought of me and she put in a good word for me. I was interested. And that's how I got it. That's, you know, when we started this discussion, Mm -hmm. I mentioned the luck factor and there is a luck factor, you know, because I, I, well, I got that job because I knew someone who was a good friend who was leaving and who couldn't put in a good word for me. If, if this hadn't been the case, I'm not sure that I would have even applied. You know, it was just like going with the flow. It's also about networking though, not only luck. You could say that, but I don't think I was ever really good at networking because I've never actually done networking, uh, sort of deliberately. It was about, well, th- this, particular friend we studied together uh at the academy so we we really stayed good friends ever since then uh and she was thinking about okay listen i i know that he will be looking for a job and frankly she should be i that's what she told herself Mm -hmm. you know afterwards when we were talking about it right it just shows that it is important right that it can make a difference it is it is certain points and of course it has to come at the right time and in the right place and that's the luck factor, but it's a combination, I think. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I have to say, maybe I'm a bit, um, I'm a maverick on when it comes to, to networking, because I'm not absolutely convinced about sort of deliberate planned mm-hmm. networking. I have yet to see, so from my milieu, sort of my, my environment, this actually working for people. In my experience, n- networking works, but it's typically not the way we 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 think it's going to work out 
if you see what I mean. So for me, it was never people that I was thinking about as a potential contact that, that, you know, I should, I should network, uh, specifically with these people because this is where I want to take my life. This is where I want to take my career. It was always coming from places which were absolutely unforeseeable for me. Uh, if you told me, well, you should network with this, with this, with this friend, you know, something like this and, and, you know, for, for your job, I would never have believed that at the time. And then you see how it, how it worked out. So I just have to, I just had to say my, my piece on that. Of course. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, that's also why we're listening to you and to your experience to see, uh, what is helpful, maybe also for others who are listening. Before I'm going to ask you what your research, uh, your PhD research specifically is all about, um, I wanted to ask you, as you mentioned earlier, you now were back in Geneva after applying for this position and continuing with the PhD and also the TA position. Um, you did mention that it was harder this time to move away again yeah. from Serbia. Yeah. So why was that? All right. So, so this goes also to the, to the sort of personal uh, level. Which which was which was challenging. It worked out, which is which is good, but it was it was quite challenging. So when I when I first went to uh, for my LLM, I'd already been in a in a in a long years long relationship. Uh, after the so we had a distance relationship with so today we are married. Uh, she is my wife. Uh, but the second time, so the first time, okay, we were we were like. I mean, we were kids, basically, you know, it's, and also, like, my, uh, I don't know, my, my personal needs in life, like, in terms of accommodation, etc., were also more modest when I went for the LLM, when I went to just study, when I was living in a student residence, I was perfectly happy with this, but then I came back, I started working, I, I actually, I mean, for terms of, you know, Serbian standards, I had a really good job, I, we live in a nice place, uh, we were living together with our two dogs, you know. <laughs> so when moving to back to Switzerland again, I I had to accept that you know somehow. Well, the first thing that I would have to do is somehow, in terms of my comforts and luxuries in life, I'd need to take a step or two down the social ladder. If you if you get my meaning, so I basically. Uh, so first, and, and we also had to, to, you know, decide that for at least a, for a while, we would have to do it long distance again. Uh, but the idea was, if I, got a, if I got a good job afterwards, that she would join me in Switzerland and that she would also start looking for a job, which is what we eventually did. But the first year when I, when I moved there, this was really difficult because for the first, let's say, four months when I was working at the ICRC, I was living with two flatmates uh, in, a, in, a, in a shared flat. And then after that, I, I moved out and I, and I again lived in student, mm -hmm. student accommodation, basically, as, as a trainee. I've been there. I've done that back and forth. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of difficult. And we wanted to spend as much time together as, as we could. So she was coming often. But basically, we were living, the two of us, for weeks, let's say, in a, in a tiny little room in student accommodation, which was, which was really difficult. But later on, so this was like, so I moved back to Switzerland in uh, spring 2016 so by 2017 i got my i started my phd and i got my uh i got my job as a teaching assistant and when i had left the icrc my administrative position if you will 
changed uh, in the eyes of the Swiss authorities. So basically, as a PhD student, not only did I get access to the Swiss labor market, but also my my partner, in, in this case, my wife did. So she, we both moved to, she, she moved together with me uh, to Switzerland. We were still staying at that student place for a while. And then slowly we, we managed to find a, a, a separate studio and then later to find a proper apartment. So we, we, where we currently live. Uh, but the thing is that, so this period where we knew, okay, no matter what happens, we're going to stay together. But somehow we were actually, so during, let's say 2017, before she got a job and before I, I got a bigger contract, we were actually living, the two of us, in Geneva on a 50% TA salary, which is, which is extremely modest for one person, let alone for two people. And we were really, really, we had to be extremely frugal in a way which we hadn't been used to before that because we, we really lived a good life in Belgrade. We, I mean, we were going out all the time and eating at restaurants and, and hanging out with people and buying stuff, etc. But this was really for us a new moment where we couldn't do any of that because literally we had to have an extremely strict plan for groceries and for everything. And that's where I found it to be most challenging for, because at some point, like my friends working for international organizations in Switzerland or for, for missions or, you know, in, in, as diplomats, were all advancing in life because they weren't doing a PhD. Huh? So that's, that was also the, the sort of takeaway is they were, they were getting good salaries, they were sitting around, you know, going to restaurants, etc., and inviting us constantly. And it's not that we don't want to go out, it's that we can't afford it. And I'm not really, not, neither of us were really willing to accept that people were going to be inviting us for lunch all the time because we just don't want to go there and we just say it. So we were constantly saying no. So, so this period was actually quite, quite difficult. Um, until we, until my my wife also started working, and until I I got a I got a bigger contract and and started doing um, some other projects to the side, um, which ultimately actually enabled us to live. Currently, we live. I can say, after a couple of years, we we live a really nice life uh, in Switzerland. Even though I still haven't finished my my PhD, but for a, for a while there, let's say you know, two thousand seventeen, half of two thousand eighteen, and we were really almost our mind was almost made up to just say well i mean why should we live this way i mean what's what's the purpose i mean we go back home we'll both find jobs um we'll find good jobs but then for me it was like yeah but you know i, I see myself as maybe building a, an academic career here and so ultimately we managed somehow to go through that but it was really really tough and it at some probably point. also has quite a toll on your mental health on your relationship, right? It's not only that you can't afford to go out for lunch, which is a fun thing to do. It's a lot no. more than yeah. that. Listen, let me tell you, I'll never forget when we were uh, sort of scraping. Uh, so back when we were living in that student place, you you don't really have, you know, you, you learn how much of a luxury is a washing machine, you know? So basically what we needed to do is you you, you need to, save some money uh, you need to save coins for the for the washing machines and the and the salon and then at some point you realize okay there's a lot of stuff we want to wash but then we're sort of like let's say two francs swiss francs short you know and then you need to 
get it from somewhere. And, and at that point, really, I mean, we were laughing about it then. We have a few videos when we were like talking about that, you know, we, that we saved for ourselves. But now when I, when I think about it in retrospect, I feel for me, this was, a, this was actually a very difficult time, you know, um, and for her as well. And like in terms of the mental health, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess that people cope in different ways. I was under a lot of stress, you know, different people. I know some people, I don't know, some people start, I don't drinking or start eating. We were eating a lot, you know, all, all sorts of things. Like, because unfortunately, bad food is cheap. If somebody is listening uh, to us who is currently in that story, well, let me tell you that, I mean, this passes, you go, you get through that. I think we're all much stronger than that, as, as bleak as it may may look in any given moment. And, you know, for me now, I'm in, I'm in, in, a, in a really good place. And I think that that experience, I think that I'm much, much wealthier for it, frankly, than if everything had just been going smoothly and perfect, because now I sort of know, well, listen, okay, it's, I mean, whatever happens, I'm hoping it's, it's, it can't be much worse than that, you know, so I'm kind of ready for, for things to happen. And I do feel much better about it. So, um, but back in the day, it was quite tough. So it, it was definitely tough and it shouldn't be underestimated. No, no. But you've also come to terms with it now a few years later. Absolutely. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are much worse stories than, than ours. Uh, it was, uh, well, ultimately ours was financial. You know, it's, it's uh, let's face it. I mean, especially in a country like Switzerland, which is, which is really expensive. And also you come from, coming from Serbia, and back then there was also the, the economic situation back in Serbia wasn't ideal, exactly. The thing is, you, we, at least at the time, couldn't really rely, let's say, on our family for a lot of uh, help in this, in this regard. I mean, the, the prices between Serbia and Switzerland and, of course, the salaries are, we just can't compare that, you know? So we somehow felt, you know, so this is it, you know, it's, it's really, it's just us. Nobody can help us. So basically, we we felt a little bit isolated. Not abandoned, but isolated. And somehow we managed to get through that. But also, I think it was great also for our relationship. Because we were in this struggle together somehow. And we, we supported each other and we, we got through it. I think that uh, if it had just been me, if I if I hadn't been with, with my with my wife, I think that it would have been much more difficult for me. Uh, to get through that. All right. And you mentioned that you were both thinking at some point, why are we actually living like this? We could go back and find a job and not be like this anymore. But then for you, yeah. you signed this contract or you were committed to doing a PhD and to continuing the research. So now we're, of course, very curious what your research was all about and what kept you there in that situation. So my PhD is, as you as you mentioned it, it's it's called currently the the final title is recognition of states in international law. It's a very, it's what we would call a generalist topic in international law. So this is general public international law. So I decided when doing my PhD that I didn't want to do either humanitarian or human rights law because actually by then. I also wanted to be something more of a generalist international lawyer. So, so these are specialized branches, as I mentioned, but then there is a sort of like general body of, of public international law, which is basically regulating 
the relations, the legal relations between, between states primarily. So my, so when I, when I, um, was taken on as a teaching assistant, the requirement was that soon after starting the, the contract as a teaching assistant, I was supposed to become also a PhD student. And I had known of, I, I didn't know him personally, I had only listened to him lecture, was Professor Robert Kolb of the Faculty of Law of the University of Geneva, who is, amongst other things, he's, I think, a, a fantastic lawyer and a, and a great professor. But he was also well known as a generalist, so for his for his general courses of, of international law. And I told myself, well, I'd like to do that. I'd like to, to, to try with him. Rather than to do as most of my, most of my classmates who later did uh, PhDs in Geneva did on specifically on topics of international humanitarian law. And I told myself I'd rather do something else. And when I went to talk to him, he, ex he took me on for, uh, for a meeting, for a consultation. I was, was he, Robert Kolb is really this, this great, wonderful guy who, without even knowing me, he was like, yeah, we'll be fine. I'll be happy to take you on. I can see that, that you're a, you're a nice guy. I mean, as long as you're aware of the implications, meaning that I'm not going to be writing your PhD for you. You are going to be writing your PhD for you. I'm going to be helping you, supervising, and that's it. Um, so I said, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I don't expect you to write my PhD for me, but then I had a few suggestions about uh, what I wanted to write about my, my, and I had sort of two topics, which were very vaguely defined, uh, in my head, because ultimately I knew that I wanted to do something which is about general international law, public international law, but I didn't really have it crystal clear in my head about what I wanted to, what I wanted to explore. So I had sort of two topics. One was sort of re related yeah. to subjects of international law. And the other one was about more of something along the lines of international refugee law, because I've been working a lot in this. I've been working with UNHCR. I've been working with the Belgrade Center uh, for Human Rights on refugee law, etc. So as soon as I mentioned uh, refugee law, he told me, no, I don't do refugee law. If you want to do a refugee law PhD, you should go and talk to that professor who teaches refugee law. And for the okay. other topic, he told me, we can maybe make it work, but it's a bit too broad the way that you conceive it. So you need to go a bit more, uh, you need to, to conceptualize it a bit more. And then actually he suggested to me and he told me, listen, seeing as how you come from, from Serbia and you, because you speak the language, maybe you could actually add some, you know, uh, bring something fresh for an international audience, uh, in relation to recognition because of, because of Kosovo. I said, well, listen, uh, yeah. And I said, well, listen, you know, I am actually, sort of, I mean, I, I don't mind writing about this, but what if somebody tells me where you're coming from Serbia, etc., and you're writing about this? Doesn't it feel weird? Doesn't it feel awkward? And also, isn't this guy biased? And of course, he told me, yeah, well, I mean, you can write whatever you like, but uh, if you're biased, then the, you're going to fail your PhD defense because you're going to mm -hmm. say, wow, that makes me feel so much better now. And of course, obviously, I am, I am extremely, I, I like to think of myself as somebody who's very scientific and, and, uh, not biased in my approach. Said, okay, listen, we can do this, but I'm not going to focus on Kosovo. I'm going to write about recognition in general using different situations, different. And I said, that's fine. So that's how we did it. And already with, with just working on recognition, which is sort of a, 
I tend to get very uh, a very mixed response when telling people what I'm writing about. Uh, for a lot of people that I know currently, uh, so generalists like the topic and they think it's good to write about this, but sort of specialists, people who specialize in a, in a specific branch of, of, of law, especially like human rights or, or international humanitarian law, they're like, Paula, why are you writing about this? I mean, it's not such a big topic today. Well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'm not saying that this is so, but this is sort of the this typical prejudice that I sometimes encounter, uh, even from a few younger professors who who told me, you know, that I met them from around here, who were actually telling me, like, I mean, you're going to defend your thesis, but unless you can really publish your thesis with, with let's say, uh, with, with a good publisher, I mean, what's the point? Because if you're looking for an academic career, this is the sort of thing that ultimately uh, makes or breaks an application, because... It's not apparently the way it used to be. If you wanna, if you wanna become a, 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 let's say, at least an assistant professor of international law, and you are applying for a for a Western university, they're not just gonna ask you for for mastery of general international law, but they're gonna throw in some, let's say, some corporate law or tax law or something like that. So the it's somehow going towards greater specialization rather than general international law. I said, well, listen. Uh, my supervisor thinks it's a good topic. I think it's an interesting topic. I think that I can, even though, okay, yeah, the topic as such is it's an old topic. It's a very sort of uh, classical topic, but I think it's actually quite, I, I do think it's extremely relevant today. And, uh, and we've had in, in the past couple of years, we actually had a lot of recognition, not just of states, but also of governments, for example, which, People were thinking for a long time. So after I started my PhD, people were already thinking that uh, this was sort of a finished discussion that we wouldn't really be discussing this anymore. And then while working my PhD, a couple of things happened, which actually sort of reinvigorated uh, this thing in international law. And I would say, well, told you so. You say it wasn't such a bad, you know, my, my supervisor wasn't so, wasn't really... Uh, I, he was quite right, actually, in suggesting this, and ultimately said, "Well, the thing is that I'm I'm going to give this my very best. I'm going to try and give a perspective which is which is fresh, which is up to date, which is contemporary, and uh, well, it remains to be seen if if I've succeeded in doing that because uh, the book is finished and I'm set to 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 defend my supposed to have my defense on 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 January the twenty first. Oh. Uh, so we'll see after that. That's yeah, exciting. so it's, it's almost there. <laughs> and a yeah. little bit scary. It is super scary. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely terrified. I'm absolutely terrified, and I'm trying not to think about it too much. Uh, so this is why I, well, I'm currently on vacations, and I'm trying not to think about it, but starting in January. I mean, the thing is, uh, and I think that a lot of people, especially who are towards the end of their, their work on a PhD, uh, and on those universities where you're expected to have an, to have a, the the viva or, or an oral defense, uh, you know, I was asked also by by the secretary, but uh, are you re- will you be ready on the twenty first? Well, I mean, if 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 you want to talk about this, if you ask me to do a defense tomorrow, I think I'd be ready because I've been writing right. this thing for the past five years. I know my text by heart, you know. And I want to get, I want to finish that. I really want to move on with my life and to some other projects. Even though I love, ultimately, I, I really grew to love the topic of recognition, which has its challenges. So one challenge, which I think that I've felt somehow was this sort of prejudice, uh, that somehow if you're doing this, it's like, it's like, 
well, it's like writing about statehood or something like that, which I don't know why people have started to feel that it's, it's no longer a hot topic because actually it's, it's a big deal. These are, these are some issues which, which have never actually been resolved in international law. They have been done to death. That's true. A lot of people have been writing about it, but that doesn't mean that we can't still be writing about it and to, to show some new perspectives. Uh, and I've done my best to do exactly that in my, in my research. Right. I mean, to me, it sounds totally legit, even though I'm not really that invested in your uh, topic. Thank you. <laughs> it's also something you said, like when you started thinking about what it was you wanted to write about and to research and this supervisor who is supposed to know what he's doing, uh, tells you that it also sounds good and that he's also interested in reading your work. If that's what you're going to work on. Um, mm -hmm. then that's definitely accessible. So I wish you the best of luck, uh, at your, <laughs> at the final presentation. Thank you very much. Well, at least so far, they feel that it is soutenable, as they say in French, or defensible. So I guess that's already something, uh, but be that as it may, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll do my best to, to put on a good show at the defense. All right. Well, do let us know, because we would love to know how it went. But I'm sure it's not going to be too surprising. I think this is a really nice bridge uh, on the wrap-up of your PhD, right? And getting the title soon, hopefully, fingers crossed. To the last question, and the most important one of this show, which is, what are you going to do with that, right? What's happening after this PhD? I was scared of that question. I was really scared of that question. Of course, I've been thinking a lot about it. Uh, so... The thing is, I think that, I think that a lot of people, uh, a lot of PhD students, a lot of PhD candidates, I, I think we're all terrified by this question. So somehow when, when, when doing a PhD in, in my view, at least, and this was my experience, but I think it can be generalized is you have a, you have a vision, you have a goal, all right? You, ha you have a purpose. You, you somehow, subsume everything that you're doing professionally and quite a bit of what you're doing, you know, personally, your, your personal life becomes, uh, everything is, is really serves this singular purpose of, of finishing and defending your, your PhD thesis. And then after that, we really don't, we, we, we don't really think about it so much about what we're going to do after that, because everything is constantly, well, I don't want to think about it until I finish the thesis. But it is important to think about it. Absolutely. It's, it's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. And this is why I, I really needed to start taking some steps already before that. Although I was really trying to, uh, trying to avoid thinking about it because the way I react to things that I don't like is I somehow try to suppress them. I try not to think about them. I try not to talk about them. And that's really, that, that's, I don't think that's a good reaction because to the contrary, I should somehow focus on this, problematize it and deal with it. So as scary as the PhD defense is, somehow I always felt that whatever comes next is even scarier. Uh, so, but, so now I, so at some point I started really asking myself and I told myself, listen, what do I like? What do I want to do? So obviously I want to stay working on international law, but the really, the real question was whether I wanted to stay in academia or if I wanted to go back, let's say to, working as a practitioner. And I realized, I think, okay. that 
the academic approach is the one that I like. I, I like the academic life. I like doing research. I, I really felt a lot, Danny, with what you said that you were good at writing. I always loved writing, uh, basically since I was a kid and the job that I'm currently doing allows me to write a lot, not just for the, for the thesis, but also for my other research projects, because I have been doing a lot of other stuff to the side, uh, not counting the, the PhD research where I was doing research, let's say, on counterterrorism, on human rights and refugee law, etc. And this is something which I find extremely fulfilling. I enjoy working with students and I really like the sort of, so after I'd left civil society and the International Committee of the Red Cross, which, which has which works basically as an international organization. I mean, okay, legally speaking, it's not an international organization like the United Nations are, but it is, it has a status. It works as a, as, as a huge, huge enterprise globally. And the thing is when, when working for human rights, humanitarian law, humanitarian organizations, let's say, mm -hmm. you are not necessarily taken on as a thinker. You are taken on as a doer, if you get my meaning. So let's say, you have a job, you're given a job, there's something that you need to do. As a legal advisor, you need to resolve something, but not giving really your own legal opinion, but rather basing your opinion on the, on the views and the position of the organization as such. And this limits you to a certain extent. Uh, you, when I was there and when I was publishing stuff, even just for a blog post, let's say you need to make a million and one uh, really just, you know, restrict yourself in the foot and say, well, this is just my own personal view. And actually in the academic sector, there's none of that. I mean, it's, it's all about your own personal view. And this is something that I like. So let's say the, the work with the, the freedom of, of, of thought and expression with the, the, the great autonomy that we get. And finally, I must say with also with the relatively flexible working environment, which I really appreciate just told me in the end, well, I want to stay in the, in, in the academic sector. So currently, uh, what I'm going to do once I'm done is, so I discussed with a professor that I'm uh, assisting at the university and at the academy. So I'm going to have, I'm, my contract is going to be prolonged again for next year, and I might okay. become a postdoc, hopefully, if everything goes well. So for next year, I'm staying there working as hopefully a postdoc, if everything goes well, um, I'm going to start, I'm going to use next year to prepare my thesis for publication. And I am going, because I think it's a big deal. I think that for all of us, it's, it's important to, to try and, and well, not to cash in on, on, on the PhD thesis, but to sort of, to try and, and, uh, really, you know, just to have some outreach with it. I think it's, it's, I think it's a really, really good thing for, uh, for a future academic career. So I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to also use next year to reflect a bit more upon, I want to stay in, in academia, but what is the best way? I mean, should I stay in Switzerland? Should I go elsewhere? Should I go to apply for this university or should I work as a researcher? Especially during a pandemic? Absolutely. Not yeah. to mention, not to mention the, that's, that's all without discussing the pandemic. Exactly. Factor because, uh, I mean, not to mention, let's say, you know, traveling internationally, traveling domestically, uh, moving from one place to the other. All of this we have to consider as well. It's very difficult. This makes it really stressful. But 
ultimately, I mean, okay, I, I, I told myself, okay, there are some things which are up to me. There is, there are a lot of other things which are not up to me. I really focus. I do my best, uh, in relation to what, what is up to me. And then everything else, it's out of my hands. So, I mean, if things work out, fantastic. If not, well, there's always something else. You know, it's not, you know, it's, it, that, that, it's not really going to make or break my, my future. I think it might just, you know, the way things work out might just push it in one direction or another. We need a little bit of luck with it at the right Absolutely. place and the right time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, being at the, the right place at the right time is, is, is crucial. And I don't think that there is anything we can do about that. Really, that, that's really, you know, one of the things going back to the, the Stoics and let's say the philosophy that I was also thinking about studying. Uh, so, but, but back in the day, there was like, you know, we, we still use it, I think, very often in, let's say, in, in therapy, etc. It's like, okay, we really need to distinguish between these two. But I do think that at a certain level, with the things that we can influence, uh, like, we can somehow, I mean, they, they do have an impact even on the things that we prima facie cannot influence. So let's say about being at the right place at the right time, I think that if you work hard and if you really give it your best that sooner or later you will be at the right place at the right time because somebody uh will recognize that you know so so this is why we shouldn't stop working we shouldn't stop giving it our best i think that that's absolutely crucial right and it's not that it only happens one time that there is a right time and a right place it can happen at different times exactly um, I just have really just a few last questions left, um, but I'm going to allow you to only answer them in one sentence so that we can one wrap sentence. up. Yeah. The first, uh, it's, it's three questions. And the last one is the mm -hmm. easiest. So the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? My PhD thesis. Right. That's a very good short answer. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it's true. Uh, that's what I think. And I think it's very fair. You worked on it for five years. I have. And your supervisor is also happy with it. <laughs> he, he is very happy with it, but then I don't know if he's being subjective. So, uh, <laughs> but ultimately, I, I, my biggest contribution to the field, I, I have no doubt that, I mean, it's everything is relative because then you weigh against my other contributions, which may not be uh, groundbreaking, definitely. But amongst what I have done so far, I think that the, my thesis is, so far, my, my major work. All right. Then the next one is, who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Uh, well, one sentence you said, so I have to be. It's going to be my, currently, my PhD supervisor, uh, Robert Kolb, who is, I think, absolutely brilliant. And, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Right. Uh, because it was one sentence. I mean, I can clarify right. later, but I will say right now it's, it's going to be him. And I don't want to, uh, I'm not saying this, I don't want to carry favor with him, but just like thinking right now, if there is somebody who, whose work I am genuinely, genuinely deeply impressed by, it's, it's, it's currently it's him. And I'm really, I'm lucky, uh, to, to be his PhD student. All right. All right. Well, the last question then, but that's the easiest one. How do you relax after a hard day of work? I walk my dogs because, you know, uh, it's something that you have to do, obviously, but it's something that, uh, also relaxes me a lot. 
and ultimately i just didn't bring out we're really so a, a couple of months ago we finally brought our dogs they also moved to switzerland and that was funny because they actually as dogs they got swiss passports quite quickly and i keep telling <laughs> you i i've been living in switzerland for years i don't have a swiss passport you guys just come over here and you get swiss passports like within two weeks uh so yeah so now we we are even happier because our because our dogs are, are with us so for me after i'm done uh we go for a walk we we live uh, relatively close to to the lake in geneva which is which is very beautiful we walk around the lake well currently it's a bit cold but at least one of the dogs really loves water so uh it was still summer when they when they came so they were actually able to to go and then drop into the lake a bit for a, for a tiny bit of swimming nice. uh and and that's that that's just very very relaxing and then after that of course that would be the one sentence. Yeah, I walk my dogs. Then obviously <laughs> you you read, you watch Netflix or something like that. But uh, I I would I would highlight walking my my dogs. That does sound really nice to take that walk at the lake. All right, thank you so much, Pavel, for sharing your story with us today. And I also want to thank the audience for listening to yet another episode. Don't forget to connect with us on our social media pages on YouTube and to check out our website. And while you're at it. Don't forget to subscribe. Well, Pavel, I have one last question that I'm just so interested in. Um, I've studied peace and conflict and diplomacy in Israel, right? Um, and you're studying um, Kosovo as at least a case study in your research mm-hmm. uh, as a Serbian. So you said you're, you know, you can only get your research through if it's mm-hmm. proper research and science and it's neutral and unbiased. But when you present your work, how do other people respond? So when it comes to my, that's that's a good question. I don't really even use Kosovo as a case study. I mean, I use I deal with it along the way in the same way that I would deal with any other context. So it's, I don't think that you can tell that I come from Serbia and that I mean, for me, okay, I have my own uh, political views, etc. But I don't think that they they get into my strictly legal analysis in the. Um, in my PhD topic, and frankly, I, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not very too much emotionally invested in something like this to to have this issue. But then people perceive you, I guess, in a specific way. How do I find that? Well, just to, to, to cut a long story short, I haven't actually been. I've been writing a lot. I've been publishing on different topics where this doesn't come up. And in relation to my PhD thesis, while I'm defending it from people who who know me largely or who have read it, like especially the external members of the of the jury, so they will have read it. And and I think that in my text you can see that it's it's quite neutral. I don't give, especially not political views in one way or the other. So I think that just about anyone can take it. And they can think about the law and they can think about how you can apply it to given context, and that's it. I think that ultimately. I hope that our own work will speak for us, and that we shall be seen as 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 being objective uh, in our analysis. I've also given this a lot of thoughts, right? Like what I would say if someone says, "Okay, but you're writing about a topic that's related to Israel and its surroundings," uh, so but you are from there, or you have a background there, so exactly, it's not taken seriously. I understand but... absolutely. <laughs> I understand you absolutely, and this is not easy. I think that one of the most important things is also that people realize that science is a collective 
kind of a thing. It's、mm-hmm. not like one scientist who says that he's absolutely right and he has the only truth, and that's the way that it is. Even if that is、uh, the result of neutral and unbiased research, and therefore I think that everyone, no matter what their background is, can write about whatever they're passionate about if they do it in a scientific way, because then it、absolutely. adds this building block of different views. From different backgrounds, and it's so much added value in your case, and also in my case, if you can understand the language, right, and research、Absolutely. that place,、Absolutely. and read the sources, which other people from outside they might be more neutral, but they might not understand、yeah. it fully either. 